You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello and welcome to episode 296 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined by Fosma Moon and Seth Miller. Gentlemen, how are you? How are you? I'm, I'm good. Are you still quarantined in New Jersey? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Please social- are you socially distancing? Dude, I've been socially distant my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys ever had a nap where you wake up and you're like, I'm still pretty groggy, maybe worse than that, like feel more tired than when you went down? Yeah, yes, yeah, a lot. Yeah, all right. I had one That's of those a- today. So that was, that, it wrapped about an hour ago. So we're going to see how I do. You're not helping your old man crid any, any with this. <laughs> what, what is wrong with siesta time on Saturday? <laughs> No, nothing, nothing. My wife would completely agree. Uh, I just sleep late but she, Saturday. But she doesn't like bicycling for donuts. So no, she doesn't. That. Yeah, she is. That looked like a fun ride. I mean, yeah. 200 feet of, of climb isn't too bad. So it's based not flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't get that around here, so I'm jealous. Now it, the it's the 200 feet is it's sort of misleading. Um, the total up and down was about 600 feet gain and lost. Okay, but um, it's start to end like the start point and the end point were about 200 feet different. So. That doesn't account for the hills along the way, where some go deeper and then come back up. But pretty, it's still pretty, relatively flat. Pretty shallow, six hundred feet, I guess. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's one nice. or two steepish hills, but nothing long, nothing painful. Yeah, I mean, that makes for a fun ride. Makes for yeah. an enjoyable ride. So. Took us an hour and twenty minutes of moving time. So, and we weren't pushing hard at all. And you got your workout in for the weekend. Yeah. Nice. Um, we have some follow up. So uh, we talked about Scissor Hubs. What was that? Three episodes ago. Um, uh, yeah, and there has been some posts uh, or comments made to us about Scissor Hubs. Yeah, uh, just more examples because it was somewhat embarrassing when all of a sudden we <laughs> when prompted to name some. All I could come up with was Iceland. Yeah, um, but uh, one example given was Panama. Okay, makes sense. Copa. It, I was thinking sort of left right, but up down. Copa really would qualify. Everything sort of funnels down and then funnels back out um, across South America. You could argue maybe not so much with some of the Caribbean stuff, but we'll go with it. Yeah. Um, and a bunch of airlines used to use Honolulu that way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Back and forth from Oceania to North America. Yeah. So, I, would, I would go so far as a number of airlines used to use JFK like that. If we go far back enough. Fair. Because it was the gateway to Europe. Yeah. JFK and Miami, right? Miami was the gateway to South America and JFK was the gateway to Europe. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't realize how, I mean, Anchorage is used as one for cargo, right? I mean, it's kind of like a, I mean, it doesn't move people, so you can't really call yeah. it a, a, a hub, but uh, same, same theory. Yeah. Yeah. And before the 747, it was a people hub. I mean, flights to Japan used to stop there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Frankfurt for Pan Am. Yeah. Yeah. I was amazed. I was watching something the other day. Uh, maybe it was the old, I, I, I'm watching, um, uh, Amazing race, like from the first season. And I'm amazed by some of the like places people are going on airplanes during the episodes. Like they show bad footage. Like they're like, oh, here in India. And it's like a, it's a video of, of JFK. Um, and so, but, but it's like. In their defense, depending on which terminal you're at at JFK, it's not. <laughs> well, true. So, but, but uh, they're showing some of these routes these folks are flying. And I was, I was kind of surprised that, you know, I forgot even that United flew Seattle, Tokyo. Um, and they flew, yeah. they flew Portland, Tokyo for a short time. Um, just fascinating stuff. Like just the, how much Tokyo was used. I remember the Seattle, Tokyo route because when there was the, uh, there was a mistake fare, it was a B fare that was like 660 bucks Seattle to Tokyo. Yeah. And you could either 
route it on, it was a continental fare, if I remember correctly. Um, and you could either route it on the nonstop, maybe it was Northwest, it was that old. No. You could either route it on the nonstop or you could go via Houston and, you know, naturally had to go via Houston to get more miles, but sort of miss out, I miss out on the line. So I'm a little mad at myself there. <laughs> it was definitely a continental fare because I did a few of those. Yeah. But I think, was it Northwest or United? Yeah, it, would, it would be Northwest back then. It wouldn't long be. enough ago, right? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, fun times, fun times. Yeah. Uh, the other follow-up item is uh, Michael Trigger's pickle and cheese sandwich comment on BA last week. What is the story here? What's the follow-up? We have touched, up, touched off quite the uh, storm of conversation among <laughs> our uh, British and Irish friends. Uh, apparently, for one thing, it's a cheese and pickle sandwich, not a pickle and cheese sandwich. Mm. So it's important to note that the cheese is the leading uh, player in this partnership, I guess. Okay. Uh, also, pickle in this context is appears to be something of a relish. Um, so like a finer chopped and mixed vegetables, not just dill cu- cucumber. Okay. So uh, I guess it makes a little more sense as the veg sandwich option, if that's what you're <laughs> going for, because um, you're only offering one thing on a plane. Uh, one of our listeners actually posted us a back, tagged us in a tweet with a picture. He's like, I'm listening to this episode and eating one right now. I don't see what's wrong with this. So, <laughs> so we should judge, but I, I will say I've, but seen- that's what we do. So here's the <laughs> I will say I have seen in European train stations a popular sandwich is a cucumber and cheese sandwich, not a pickle relish though. So that's, that's uh, so crispy that's, fresh cucumber. Yeah, that's yeah, I've seen that before. So the, the relish part throws me off a little bit. Yeah, and my thing is like I listen. I eat pickles on sandwiches. I eat relishes on sandwiches a little less, but I understand the concept and like the vinegary and whatnot. And I get it. It's just it's not something I would have thought of as the lead one of the two lead ingredients in a sandwich. Like a BLT maybe, but there's if done right, good bacon on there also. I don't know. I feel like. I need to account for the fact that it probably had to be veg because they didn't want to deal with having two different options. Yeah. So you just go with the least common denominator veg veg option. But uh, I don't know what else you would serve as a veg sandwich at that point. But yeah, it sort of surprised me for for such a but for such a, a long flight and in an airport where there's not a ton of options open. Right, London Heathrow yeah. didn't have a ton of options. It does seem like a light, a very light meal. Like not yes. very like I mean it does seem like a lacking meal even yeah and this goes back to my comment last week of like at some point in there you just need more calories yeah yeah I mean like, yeah, how many of those little moving. packs of pretzel, yeah how many of those little packs of pretzels can you eat yeah. um, and the answer is obviously more but uh. <laughs> <laughs> too many yeah I, I I will say this and guys just hear me out I do eat my grilled cheese sandwiches with pickles on them so I guess that makes me a hypocrite. Yeah, no, I'm starting to question. Um, <laughs> I, I just like the, for a long time. I, I, I like the tanginess. I don't know what to say. Yeah, I put bacon and tomato on and put pickles on the side. So there you go. Okay, okay, okay. So see, it's almost the same. you use it like as an accoutrement to your sandwich. Whereas I'm okay. All right. Um, in in new news, um, we have the Laguardia Headhouse open this weekend. Um. So this is the the central concourse, the central terminal, the main building uh, that connects uh, passengers from their car uh, to security and check in and things is now open. Um, And so I believe that everybody that was in the central concourse is now moved over, I think. Oh, yeah. The new head house is for all passengers. It still it connects to the new uh, passenger terminal for uh, those who need it, right? The airlines, I guess, United, Air Canada. American. American and Southwest, I think, have gates over there. Yep. Um, so all four of that. So you walk through the brand new building and then into the new building. For the other airlines, or the American is still split operation, you walk through the new headhouse across the bridge, the sky bridge, that eventually will have planes taxiing under it. And then you're sort of in the old headhouse and you go into uh, your old pier. 
Oh, so th- there is still an old pier open. I didn't. Yeah, the old gates that. are the old gates are still open. They only they still only have the one head pier o- or the one gate pier open. They're still working on getting hmm. the others built. So. Yeah, C and C and D, I believe, are still uh, open, fully in service. Yeah, B, yeah, they're B. B is the construction. Yeah, A and B replaced the old one, and A is gone. So, do you know what the what's the security? Uh, do you still have to go to that old head house then to get to the security lines for the new terminal? Do you know that off the top of your head? Um, I think that I, I believe the security is on the far side of the, uh, ramp. Yes. It's not, which is kind of a shame, but, uh. yeah, I mean, Foz and I were kind of talking about this offline. Like his biggest concern is when they finish all of this, when they're all done, security will then be at the head house in a central location. Um, and you will no longer have the ability to kind of show up to the, the, the pier 10 minutes before, you know, your flight leaves or 20 minutes before your flight leaves and get through. Um, which is, I mean, thoughts to be fair, it's, it's a fair argument that, you know, LaGuardia, you could be late and still make your flight. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the best parts of LaGuardia, right? Here's the thing. The old LaGuardia was functionally great. It sucked if you had to spend time there, but you could also minimize your time there. The new LaGuardia is going back to the mo- mode of forcing people to spend more time at the airport so they can drive up revenue. Right. I, I will dispute that slightly. I've still I've had plenty of times where I arrived at LaGuardia and there was still a line to get through even those limited checkpoint like the limited gate checkpoints. How long was that line? No worse than I faced at the, you know, JFK T4. Maybe that maybe not. Maybe T4 has had some backups bigger than that, although pre-check usually got me through. I don't know. I I I don't feel like I've spent much time finding I don't feel like there's too many airports where it's more than 15 minutes through the line no matter what. I guess is what I'm getting to. I I would argue the bigger airports are getting to be more than 15 minutes. Like I've gone to Newark any number of times in the last few years and it's it's up to 30 minutes for pre-check. And that, Since they finished the construction though, I know there was a lot of problems when they were, they were moving everybody and routing like lines down to the lower tiers. I remember that also, but I thought that was tied to the construction. They're still doing that. The only thing that escapes all that, at least the last time I flew now, it's been a few months, was clear. Yeah, if you have clear, you pass bypass all of the, the mess. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I found Newark to be one of the bigger pains. I found JFK to be slightly painful at times. Uh, LaGuardia, I mean, if you showed up at LaGuardia during like the 4.30 rush, man, LaGuardia, you could be out into the check-in area with a line, even with pre-check, um, which could take you 20, 30 minutes, depending on how slow people were to go through security. Yeah, and that's, that's my, I don't think there's any perfect solution. I mean, we've talked about even the Kansas City or Berlin version where it's just your gate. Who the hell knows? Yeah, yeah. I I wonder. You know, I was I was having this conversation on Twitter with some folks. Uh, there's like a sadness for the 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 loss of nostalgia of Laguardia going to this kind of like fresh and clean look. Um, you know, it's the one place that I'm okay with kind of gentrification. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm gonna have zero sadness on that broken like welcome <laughs> to Laguardia. We support the troop sign with the dripping buckets, like the tarps <laughs> catching dripping water through the ceiling next to it. Yeah. But- you know, but the thing I, I will say, going back to the security thing, right? One of the challenges of centralized security is it's easier for them to drop the staffing levels, and we've seen this at any number of airports over time, yeah, right? True. A lot of the problems with the security is they continue to just drop staffing levels, and with the multiple security checkpoints, you can't do that to a, you can only do that to a certain point, right? I've gone to Newark any number of times for like an a nine p.m. flight. Well, there's not a ton of flights, but there's one lane open. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, will you miss the, will you miss the, uh, aesthetic of, of LaGuardia Foz? Not the functionality, but the aesthetic. I will miss the aesthetic a little bit. <laughs> really? You're broken. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're done here. You're broken. 
you you enjoyed the dripping ceilings and uh so you know. here's the thing when i when i walk out off the plane and walk through that terminal it primes me for what i'm about to experience when i hit the curbside <laughs> chaos chaos and rudeness and all this other stuff right it prepares me for that now coming into this nice beautiful thing it's a much bigger shock as soon as you hit the curbside i mean that's that's true to a point but i mean like the, to me there there is an aesthetic like like lower east side or soho you know where there's like grimy parts to it you know um but LaGuardia just always like i've never actually like been attacked as much as I have in LaGuardia by, by cab drivers or fake livery drivers. Like they see you coming down that escalator with the dripping ceiling and all. And they're like, you need a car? You need a car? And they're like swarming you. Nowhere else have I ever had that happen except at LaGuardia. So you, say, so you say, yes, do you have a Bentley? <laughs> Just put them on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh man. Um, I mean, I, I do like the fact that the the lounges are behind security now so if you do have to spend time behind security you can um i don't really like the setup of the two lounges so air canada and united both have lounges there and they're the kind of lounge where it's like still open to the to the to the terminal and they just have like a glass wall and you're up above kind of people down uh walking around the terminal i'm not a huge fan of it just because you kind you've kind of lost that uh laguardia united club feel where you could you were basically looking out over the runway and you had a great view well, one of my questions is, when did we lose the requirement for quietness in the lounges? Mm, that's right? a good this, question. This, every new lounge that's open is this whole open, wide concept and takes away from the whole premise of the original concept of having a quiet spot. And that's probably one of the biggest values I've had historically is being able to take phone calls and tend to stuff like that. Now you can't in most of these lounges. Yeah. Well, it's like all the open air lounges in Hong Kong. I mean, do have- going back going back a long time, right? The, the Thai Air Lounge in Hong Kong, United Lounge in Hong Kong, those were always open ceiling, like and had this suffered the same problems. It was great if you wanted to look down at the people, but it was. But, uh, but I feel they're much quieter, and, and yes, they have fewer the same total announcements. What's that? Fewer total announcements. Well, I think it's also they're also designed in a, such a way that there's less echo. But like you go to the San Diego Lounge, and you can't even have a conversation with someone sitting next to you. It's that loud? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in like in Hong Kong, even the cafe lounges, uh, for the most part, except for like the first class lounges, are, are open to the terminal, um, and they and they do seem quieter. But the advantage of there, right, in the case of Hong Kong, right, the upstairs lounge is definitely open to the terminal, but it's all the way in the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Far. It's it's not in the middle of everything, and I think that's part of it. Yeah, although the Thai lounge is in the middle of the the, the walkway, like it's right above the central section, so. Yeah, not not all of them, but I mean, as is the uh, United one and the Amex lounge, right? They're all in the middle of that center pier, but like the cafe lounges are all the, and the Singapore lounge is always at the, on the edges. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think trying to think about if there's anything else I want to say about LaGuardia. I mean, I think I think it's nice to have food options uh, for someone who was flying through LaGuardia for work, like coming in, about to get on an airplane to be able to like grab something quick to eat that wasn't you know Hudson News package sandwich was was a nice you change. You didn't like the four day old Obopon? No, or, or the or the Annie Anne's. I, I wasn't a huge fan of <laughs> eating, an Annie, eating an Annie Anne's before a flight. Just is asking for a disaster to happen midair. Is that like eating Popeyes before yeah. flying? Yeah, <laughs> it's like you might as well just have fresh Alestra at the end. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Um, I, I will say the one other thing worth noting about the new LaGuardia that is nice uh, uh, that I've seen in the picture. Some of the artwork in the terminal is really cool. Oh, and someone, I think it was the New York Times story noted, it's uh, currently the best 
art like museum option open in New York City because everything is closed down. Um, and, <laughs> and like three of the ma- three of the four major exhibits are outside security. <laughs> oh, so, you know, if, you're, if you're missing art in New York City and needs you know need that feeling, head out to LaGuardia and preferably take the bus. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, planes are too light and it's causing issues for pilots. So there was a story about um, uh, the FAA warning of erratic takeoffs. Uh, do you have any more information on this, Seth? I mean, I guess I've read it slightly more, skimmed it slightly more than you did. There, there's a story out. Basically, the uh, FAA went back through some of the sort of air, airline pilot self-reporting database and some of the issues pilots have been facing. And because the planes are so much lighter, they were having issues with like uh, when you you know pull back for takeoff, it's pulling up more than it typically would, and it's changing the attitude or the. the um, that the plane leaves the ground with. And so, you know, it's a risk of tail strike because you pull up too quickly Mm -hmm. depending on the plane and things like that. I didn't quite understand how the navigation systems would be off as a result. Uh, But there was also a mention of like pilots climbing to assigned altitudes and the plane being lighter. So it's going through the altitude and like, they need to sort of pull off the trim faster Mm. sooner because it's like, it literally like they'd overshoot their altitude. And that's interesting. I mean, I think the the one that I don't get is how the uh, are they climbing so fast? It mentions they couldn't maintain cabin air pressure. Were they climbing so fast that they were going through the altitudes to where the the cabin pressure couldn't be equalized down to you know whatever it is ten thousand feet or eight thousand feet um, quick enough? Is that is that how I'm reading that? I guess I I don't it doesn't have the details in the story. So there's some really it's it's interesting of like things we didn't normally think of, but you know, flying light empty planes. The aircraft has a very different performance profile. Yeah. But shouldn't the onboard computer be able to figure out the weight of the plane and apply thrust accordingly? You would think so, right? Because, I mean, a lot of this stuff, so when they when they, when they they do their, you know, FMC, the flight uh, computer, when they're programming that, they also put in the plane weight, like the estimated weight with fuel, passengers, et cetera. Right. Um, and but that, that, also, gives, that calculates back out like your your V one V two numbers and things like that, right? It doesn't. You're still like when you hit the number for um, it's safe to take off now. You pull back. Like the computer doesn't do that. Yeah, it's, really, Boeing's. it's really the pilot. It's really the pilot's reaction to oh, this plane's pulling up faster, right? He pulls well, back and he's all of a sudden at fifteen to twenty degrees climb instead of ten. That right? one should that, be that one I get, but I'm referring to well, a the computer will tell you what your flap setting should be at too. So it should calculate that based on the weight of the plane, but B overshooting the assigned altitude. Cause by then most pilots are on autopilot anyways. Yeah. Right. So, and it's not like these planes haven't flown empty before cause they do ferry flights. They do, uh, you know, uh, move in flights. They, they do these things. It's not like it's that unusual of a case to fly empty. So it can't be that the computer, it's a corner case for the computer. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's a good question. I mean, because you have, you know, you hit, you put an altitude in and that the, the, the plane basically calculates what it needs to get there. And you tell it, I want a 10 degree climb or whatever. And it, it'll know, it knows when it gets close and it starts to let off the climb as it gets closer to that altitude. I don't, I don't know why then Foz, it would, would do that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we'll have to see. I mean, do they update this database pretty regularly? Uh, I believe so, but I'm not sure that it's publicly, not publicly accessible. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what else we got? So we had a the MRJ, right? The the Japanese uh, kind of light jet, I guess. It's called the space jet. Yeah, it was the re- it was a regional jet. It was a ninety seater, and then they were going to do a seventy seater. Um, it's been halted. Yeah, it turns out. Well, so there was an M ninety, which was the ninety seater, 
Um, and then there's the M70, which was the 100 seater, or excuse me, the M100, which is the 70 seater, um, because they're just going to make the model number go up as they change things. Uh, <laughs> and it's really, as you can tell, it makes a lot of sense. I, even I don't get confused by it. Uh, but they have fully suspended work on the M100. And the goal of that one was to finally make it scope compliant uh, for US pilot scope. All along, they had been hoping that scope rules would change and that the M90 uh, would be okay. And they they had always planned a smaller version, and it was still going to be too big. And so they had to they had to completely trash that and sort of start over. They also had to ch- make like I want to say near, if not more than a thousand changes to like the original plane from when it did its first test flight to the most recent one that joined the test fleet, which was built as will be manufactured. Sort of this like a certifiable con- con- configuration from the from the assembly line. So it was a lot of changes involved. It was not good. I don't say not good, but it wasn't good initially uh, when they started building it. They had to make a ton of changes and you know retrofit all those onto the test fleet. But now finally had one come out that was sort of ready to go. But they have orders for the M90, um, and it's already it was supposed to be delivered in 2013. So you can imagine uh, the pains there for those airlines. But they're trying to get them still delivered. Maybe now late next year, if not 2022. And they've they've stopped on the M100 development because now it's unclear if there's really going to be need for scope clause compliant planes, given that a bunch are getting grounded now. And who's going to buy new planes when they have access to cheap, regular, readily available ones that everybody already in the fleet. Mm-hmm. And the M90, I think they haven't sort of they haven't fully grounded the program, but I believe they've also stopped construction right now. Um, because again, with the who the hell knows when people are going to really want new planes. Does so when you, we say it's been halted, like are they developing any new? Ver- they're not going to develop any new versions of the plane, or is it just kind of like we're going to wait? We're playing wait and see game. Is that is that what I'm? Thinking? It's a lot, it's wait right now, right? I mean, they didn't they didn't pull a Boeing and like burn down the 757 tooling kit. Yeah. Um, they're, they're still working, you know, on the assumption that they're going to deliver airplanes eventually. But right now, uh, it is not this. It is not going to be the new, the newer, smaller version. And even the original, bigger version, they've suspended most of the work. Oh, okay. Um, and similar, or not similar, but close by, uh, the uh, Chinese Comac, uh, China Express Air, has said they're going to buy a hundred of those planes. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's maybe, Comac maybe. and it's it's Comac and the ARJ. Okay, or that is a Comac. What's this? The C nine nineteen and nine twenty nine is a Comac and someone else. That's the Russian partnership, I think. Right? Uh, yeah, it's not Sukhoi. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, yeah, they. This is one of those weird ones where, like, last year, three Chinese airlines announced that they were each going to take thirty five ARJ seventies uh, or ARJ twenty one seventy, whatever seven hundred, the seventy seater, and. They haven't yet. Um, there's only been 25 delivered so far of that plane. And I want to say a couple of years ago when I flew it, there had been like five or 10 delivered. So they're clearly slow rolling it. But every now and then one shows up in delivery of a new airline. Um, <laughs> so oh. right, the theory at one point was that the ARJ program was being used to help Comac figure out how to do manufacturing. And once they had like assembly line processes figured out and their staff trained and whatnot, th- whatever they did next would really work. Right, which would on the line and yeah. be able to do volume production and whatever. Um, so who knows if they really intend to sell all of these? But like the ARJ has hundreds of orders outstanding, and they keep buying. People keep buying more, supposedly. But also, like deliveries are few and far between. So it's a weird, weird situation in terms of what the plane really represents. Do you think they're having to like scour boneyards for parts? Since it's isn't this the uh, skeleton or the uh, Frankenstein plane? It is a Frankenstein um, <laughs> designed off the old MD eighties uh, fuselage. But no, they uh, they are manufacturing that stuff new. 
Okay, I was just gonna say if they're if they're finding, I mean, if they're gonna find stuff, I mean, pretty soon they're gonna have a whole dearth of Delta birds to to use. <laughs> <laughs> Probably uh, easier if they just flew all those across to it, China and, and you know, get a bandsaw or a sawzall and pull them back together. Yeah, we can make this work. Um, so we've got some follow up or not follow up, but a listener question, uh, kind of a random question that I'm not sure we're going to be able to fully answer. Uh, but Ben Brockert on Twitter uh, had asked us um, if we had any interesting ideas of what to do with three thousand dollars in frontier credit. He had to cancel a family trip to Puerto Rico and now he doesn't really know what to do and spend it on. So any ideas? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I mean, he needs to travel by next year. Like, the travel could be in the next year. That's a so, lot of travel on Frontier. Well, I'm guessing it's for his family, so it's not just him. I mean, but three but three thousand dollars is still a lot of travel on Frontier. I'm guessing with Puerto Rico, depending on where he was traveling from. I wonder if it was one of the non-stops that they charge a little bit of a premium on. Maybe. I mean, I, I, I mean, I can't spend it Frontier really. Yeah, I I couldn't wouldn't even need to know where to begin personally. Mm. Yeah, I guess I, my, my thought on it is a little bit of like, pick a different vacation place and just go. Um, and then, you know, where should you go on vacation is not something I necessarily can answer, right? Like, I know where I would go on vacations. Um, although right now, I don't even know that because who knows what's going to be open and where we're going to be allowed to go. Mm-hmm. So um, the other option I would argue is maybe, and with Frontier, it's hard, but like, do you try to put it towards a route that you're pretty sure they're going to cancel in hopes that they cancel the flights and then you can get cash back out of it? Um, I mean, that would be one play that I would consider. For sure. I mean, uh, one thing, if he wants to use it, I'd consider it, I would look into the possibility of using it towards a vacation package. Mm. And Frontier, I mean, they do offer decent ones from what I've read. So that could be a good option. Um, any destinations that Frontier flies to that you guys would, would consider going to? I mean, Colorado? Wilmington, Delaware. <laughs> Uh, no, no, I'm good. no. I think he's good. I think he's good. Um, <laughs> sorry, Ben. I, I'm speaking up for you. Um, <laughs> Nix that idea. Um, I think not the idea more, not more than an hour. By the way, <laughs> an hour is more than enough. Uh, I think the idea of like trying to get cash back is actually not a bad one. Uh, I mean, cash is king, right? So if I would go back and see if his flights were indeed later canceled after he had to change plans, I would go back and fight for a refund first. Mm. I mean, it sounds like he had to cancel the family trip. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it would, that's a great question, Paz. Like, was the were the flights actually canceled? Um, in which case, you should fight for the refund. Um, if that doesn't work, rebook on something you know will cancel. Is Puerto Rico not going to open for another year? Uh, then book it. Yeah, and and but the, and the other thing I'd say is like, if Puerto Rico does reopen, I'd absolutely go there in a heartbeat. I don't know how where he lives, so maybe a super long trip. But like, uh, that's it. Actually, is a great place. I've loved the few times I've been. Mm-hmm. So. And they certainly could use this financial support, given that the federal government has told them to piss off so many times lately. <laughs> yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they do reopen. I mean, since it's an island, you know, they have a little more control over uh, entry and exit, I guess, which would be is a good thing. Um, yeah. So thanks for the question, Ben. I was going to say, I think they I know it was one of the uh, saints, the St. Thomas St. Croix had sent a letter to the FAA saying, uh, we understand that while the airlines have stopped flying here and we appreciate that you allowed them to suspend their service, but you shouldn't approve any more suspensions under the CARES Act because we actually need planes. Hmm. So. Interesting. Yeah. It's a different tact <laughs> to take. Uh, some random headlines from uh, kind of all around. Um, India is saying that uh, they won't let their citizens repatriate if they come in on airlines other than Air India. 
That's wild. It's I think that's pretty much what's going on. Basically, there's been running short. Their inter- international flights are grounded still in India, so you can't fly in and out. Um, they've been letting, or you, you can, and they've been letting uh, repatriation flights happen. They've and tra- at charter service levels, uh, and that's included people who are permanent residents elsewhere um, being allowed to leave. And so the one I saw was like Lufthansa has flown a couple charter flights in, but. It was only the only people they were allowed to, they weren't allowed to bring anybody in because only citizens were allowed in and those flights are all being forced to Air India. And the passengers that they were letting go out were only um, non-Indian citizens returning home. Hmm. But, and the, the example, the specific example that was I saw was like, they were, it was right as the flights to the US and Canada were being launched by Air India for these uh, charters. And if you were a, Indian citizen with a green card to live in the U.S., you couldn't take the Lufthansa flight with the connection. You could only go out on Air India. Hmm. And it's, you know, one of the cynical view and one that I tend to share is, hey, look, the government's still trying to prop up its operation while they're trying to keep them in business long enough that they can sell them when this is all over. Um, When you say cynical view, do you think it's the realistic view? Yes. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the way I lean. Uh, they they really want to sell off Air India. I mean that's kind of the the goal, <laughs> uh, and they're not doing well. Like Air India is in terrible shape and has been for years. Yeah, and and COVID can't be helping, but they're just trying to prop up the numbers maybe a little bit till this is all over. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Really surprised by corruption in India. Well, or anywhere, but no. Okay. In India, particularly, particularly with Air India. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Go Air uh, accidentally fired the wrong guy after uh, I wouldn't say accidentally. They meant to fire a person. Uh, it just was the wrong person after he did some after there was some social media vigilante shenanigans. Yeah, this one is all sorts of stupid. So like someone posted something on I don't know if it's Twitter or TikTok or what, but like basically bigoted, stupid, fine um, person. Person was stupid. News at 11. Uh, what happens next? And <laughs> apparently the Twitter account identified him as, you know, first name, last name and said he worked at Air India or excuse me, at, at Go Air. And then people took to Twitter saying, how do you have this person representing your company? They shouldn't fly for you, blah, 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 blah. Go Air went and was like, and immediately responded very quickly, far faster than you'd think any bureau, you know, any group could, especially with the levels of like you know HR and stuff getting involved. And said, "Oh, we do have someone by that name who's work who's a in our uh, flight training program right now, getting ready to be a pilot. Uh, he's been he's he's been thrown out, it's terminated immediately." <laughs> the guy then's like, "But that wasn't me," and had to go file a literally filed a briefing with like the Mumbai Police Department claiming st- identity theft. And printed out the two different Twitter profiles. It's like, this is my Twitter profile, where it clearly indicates I'm a pilot. This is the other one, where it clearly indicates that the person is a flight attendant. And then the airline had to back off, not surprisingly. So did it's they, like... Did they rehire him? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, stupid. But, uh. And it's stupid on all parts, I feel like, a little bit. Like, part of it is the... Yes, the vigilanteism of, like, how can any company hi- let this person still work for them? Which I do understand, like, if someone's... An asshole, then, you know, calling him out to their employer, that is something that has to be considered. But also, based on a tweet where it's not necessarily, you know, where you don't really know who it is, that can be very hard, especially with, you know, can have like many people with the same name. Yeah. I mean, most of the time when HR gets involved, it's like, oh, we're going to open an investigation and we'll know shortly, you know, what's going on. It doesn't sound like that happened. It sounded like they saw the Twitter profile and said, oh, we do have that guy uh, fired. And that was the end of it. Like, uh, it just seems like yeah. the wrong way to handle it. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and then, 
Dulles and Reagan Airport had similar issues? Same problem. So do you remember there was a guy on like the bike trail where some yeah. kids were putting up signs, um, like Black Lives Matter signs, and some guy got mad at them and was like, you know, started yelling at them and all sorts of bad. Yep. You know what I'm talking about, right? So uh, the pictures of him started circulating and people, quote unquote, found him. And someone's like, oh, I found him. He works something. He worked for MWAA, claiming he worked at the airport's authority. Um, the person in question who vaguely looked like this person was a, wasn't the person that they eventually arrested for the assault. B, uh, turns out hadn't worked at NWAA for like two years now, but people started basically hate mailing and calling the airport authority demanding that they take action. And so the, I happen to know the head of comms there, but it was like something like more than 60 phone calls over the course of a day. Trying to sort, which just like the math on how quickly and how long this could, like how those are all going, plus emails, plus tweets, plus everything else, uh, to manage what turns out to be mistaken identity. It was kind of insane. Yeah, I mean, doxing is getting out of control. It's just, it's, it's just crazy. Oh my gosh! Wow. So uh, yay, yay, vigilantism. Um, U.S. Uh, the United States has ordered uh, Marriott to wind down the hotel ops in Cuba. Uh, now, this is kind of surprising, but then again, not really. Uh, Starwood had started putting – they had opened some hotels, right, uh, in Cuba uh, after President Obama opened up the, the kind of sanctions and let people travel uh, to Cuba more free, freely. Um, and that's kind of been backed off under the current president. Uh, and I think this is part of that, right? Yes. And it's kind uh, of backed off as being generous. Yes, I'm being. I'm trying to be. Yes, uh, it is generous. Uh, basically, we're we're cutting ties again with Cuba, um, and so uh, Marriott's been told, you know, close the hotels. Uh, we're not going to do business there anymore, uh, and stop all operations. Um, I think it's bad. I think it's a bad look for us, and I think it's bad for what could have been a kind of beginning to Cuba's. Uh, tourist industry a, a better tourist industry well what i think is you know to me what's ironic is at the time my initial reaction was it's a risky investment for a company because you're going to go in spend you know oodles of cash to rebuild these operations and then it's going to be renationalized by the cuban government i didn't expect that it was going to be renationalized by the cuban government because the u.s government forced them to walk away yeah yeah it was it was the same risky investment just for different reasons. Yeah, I, I was wrong about the reasoning, which <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it sucks. It, it really does, because as you know, as Cuba gets uh, more open, it's it's good for travelers. It's another beach destination, island destination um, with a growing economy that, that American dollars could help support and grow. Um, yeah, just disappointing to see. So any other thoughts on that? No? Did you guys ever get to go? I never got the chance. No. Unfortunately, I wish I would have. Yeah. So, um, are they still going to allow the uh, aid flights, like where you come in for you know to visit family or to do research and stuff? Are they still going to allow that? Uh, the charter flights still operate, and there's actually there was a little bit of drama around those because of um, they actually they've limited the number that can operate now, and it's like they cut off all cities except Havana, and then it was the Havana number was capped at the trailing 12 months number, which is theoretically insufficient because it didn't account for the increased demand because no one can fly to the other cities anymore. Yep. And they then allocated all of those to just one or two aircraft operators and are forcing all of the 
uh, companies that, and the aircraft operators don't sell the charter. They lease the plane out and someone else as a travel agency essentially sells the charter and then books the plane and handles all the liability. And so basically they give a monopoly on the flight operations to uh, one government, to one airline. Wow. That, I mean, that really sucks. Yeah. And there were a lot of appeals and stuff. It was, there was some drama about it that I was filing in DOT filings for a while, but it's, it is done. Yeah. As they say. Yeah. Um, another kind of random story that we can talk about briefly. Uh, so TSA numbers for the first time, the checkpoint numbers hit over ha- uh, half a million yeah. uh, since COVID started. Uh, and that's the number of passengers screened, correct? Number of people screened. Number of people screened. So uh, it is worth noting that that includes employee checkpoints um, gotcha. in some in some airports, uh, just for what it's worth. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good sign. Do you I mean, we've had some some discussions with uh, friends. Uh, a, a mutual friend of ours is saying he's decided to fly. Uh, wanted to get wanted to get y'all's y'all's thoughts on on this. What it, is it safe? Do you is it not safe? Uh, are you going to start flying soon? What what's the take? I'd like to, but I don't want to leave the country. Okay, well let's let's just say domestically. Would you fly domestically? <laughs> Consider. Desperately, sorry, I desperately want to leave the country, but <laughs> <laughs> Some, somewhat more permanently, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> on that note, New Zealand is hiring teachers. Just so you know. I, I would be very bad at that. So let's see. The three of us combined can tr- teach arbitrage? It, that or uh, my wife can t- can take me there and I can be her uh, you know, maid. Um, <laughs> There's nothing but, wrong with being a kept man, Stephen. I highly yep, recommend I'm, it, in fact. I'm okay, I'm okay with that. Uh, so, Foz, what are your thoughts then flying domestically? Would you? Is there just nowhere you want to go? I, I'd consider doing it, but I, I mean, I was considering going to California at the end of the month, but United wanted an egregiously a large amount of money, and I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah. And Seth, your what are your thoughts uh, in general? In general, if I had a good enough reason to go somewhere, I would. I'm still not just for shits and grins going to book tickets and go places. Um, you know, do I want to go down and see my parents in Florida? Yes. Do I want to be in Florida? Absolutely not. Um, especially in North Florida, where they're not necessarily taking things very seriously. I mean, my parents are, but the general uh, world is not. And, you know, it's the, and I'm not sure my parents want me to show up given the risk of me traveling and whatnot brings, right? Like there's, that's something that has to be considered if you go somewhere um, and having interacted with others and whatnot. So it's, it's challenging for me. Now that said, I received an invitation or a, a soft invitation, so a feeler from an airline looking at hosting an event for media saying, we know there's a lot going on. If we held something in the eastern part of the United States where we thought we could get everybody together in a sufficiently large room, that it would be uh, you know fewer than 20 people total in the group, including media and airline, and we could even up you know, in a room built for 100 kind of thing. Is that something that you would consider? And for that, I said, yes. I'm, I don't want it to take away from work that I should be able to do. And this is work that maybe could get done on a conference call or video something, but not really the type of conversations and just the, the sort of interactions and spontaneity of some of the conversations is won't work as well. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that option. Yeah. I think, you know, as, as things kind of uh, play out, you know, Houston, Florida, the, we're seeing spikes or, or, or trending upwards of cases. Uh, Beijing had a outbreak again and they've shut down a, a section of the city. Um, to, to contain it. I think that's the unknown, right? Like, let's say you do go somewhere international uh, and then things change while you're there. Uh, will you have the same opportunity to get out like uh, the people who, you know, did during kind of these repatriation efforts when airlines aren't repatriating people anymore in certain areas, right? So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I would love, I'd love to fly. I'd love to go somewhere. I'm yeah. sure it's the right time. Uh, yeah. I will say also, you mentioned the TSA checkpoint numbers. I, 
on a whim uh, and because someone else sort of suggested it and needed so I needed something to do to keep my mind occupied, have managed to convert the PDFs that they produce of checkpoint screening throughput data to a database that's queryable now. Ooh. So instead of just the big numbers that they've published uh, for the last couple months, I have checkpoint by checkpoint, hour by hour data. And so the other day I tweeted something like the LAX suites, which is the private terminal experience you can get at LA, uh, has its own checkpoint. So by looking at the data, you can have a proxy for how many passengers are buying that service, Yeah, uh, which I thought was interesting. Any interesting numbers coming out of there? Uh, They topped out over 100 a day at one point. No, well. Which, if you think the prices they were charging and whatnot, like, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there were days where they were at, like, 10 or 20. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I don't know what rent is at LAX. I assume it's pretty high, and you got to pay for the TSA to staff the space and whatnot. But it's, uh, yeah, they, there's there's clearly some money there with the rates that they charge. Yeah. Um, on Thoth's point about pricing, have you guys noticed anything? I mean, I've noticed some fares are cheaper, uh, but overall... It seems like some things are really expensive. For me to get to Texas, I think I mentioned on the show before, it's, it's super expensive on United. Uh, for me to get across the country, it's super cheap on United. Um, it's just weird. It's it's a weird thing that they're doing. You have a connection on the – you have a connection on both, don't you? Yeah. No, well, both. On both because it was Austin, not Houston. Yeah. Um, yeah. Welcome to airline pricing. Yeah, it's weird. There's definitely a huge upcharge they're charging – or premium they're charging for nonstops. Yeah. Um, well, there's also, I don't know if you guys saw, uh, United has its internal sort of one of its internal newsletters and where they sort of do their best to have management answer questions, you know, quote unquote, that staff are asking based on what they're reading in the news. And one of the questions was, we're reading in the news about Delta and America and everybody else pulling planes out of the desert and growing services much faster than we are. What's going on? To which Kirby, I think it's attributed to Kirby, but the response from management was, yes, you can absolutely take planes out and fly more of them. If you sell the seats cheap enough, but that's just burning more money. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes me wonder if there is sort of a land grab situation to be had here or if when the time, you know, right, like part of bringing back extra capacity for Delta, at least, is they're still trying to keep seats blocked. But Americans not. Americans selling full capacity, I think. So so is United, right? They're, yeah. And JetBlue is blocking and uh, Delta is blocking. So there's... There's some reason to bring back capacity for that, but uh, Americans' load factors have also been much higher on average than others, and some people are attributing that to better coverage in the southeast. Um, although camp is not that much better than Delta's, but if it's if you take the Delta, you compare the two, and then you take away the fact that Delta's blocking seats for sale, it does sort of make some sense. Um, I think par- par- American wound down less routes or less mm-hmm. capacity than the other two because based on what I've been seeing in the, in that of Philly, there's a ton of routes they flew through in and out of Philly for the last three months that you think it, it was just surprising the number of flights that were coming and going routes or flights i guess routes not flights flights is definitely down but a lot of secondary and tertiary cities they were still flying yeah i'm looking at a chart here from uh jet tip uh jet tip.net who's a guy who i've been meaning to have on the show we get him on as a guest um if you look at mainline departures week by week uh he tra- he tracks flights and so he can he's showing sort of absolute numbers and since uh this is compared to pre-crisis average american has been on average more mainline departures than delta and united um but fewer than southwest so it's not it is actually more flights also um up through end of last week for what it's worth uh, united did cut faster and um more aggressively 
and has stayed lower as a percentage. Um, it, this suggests they're down about 85 percent. Uh, American uh, Delta is down about 75 percent. Americans down about 66 percent, and Southwest is down about 47 percent. Hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of it's it's wild, honestly, yeah. just how much is happening. Um, well, Allegiance only, Allegiance only down 17 percent year over year. Wow, that's, Allegiant that's actually, had, yeah, Allegiant, Allegiant had eight percent of the TSA checkpoint screening totals at Memorial Day weekend. Wow, and its normal level is uh, about one to one and a half percent. Wow, it's also the second largest carrier for the month of May in Des Moines, carrying twenty five percent of departures there, right behind thirty percent from American. And again, it used to be like ten percent. They're punching way above their weight because they're still flying planes. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's a good, it's a good time for them, I guess. Maybe yeah. uh, in some sort. Oh, gentlemen. Well, I think that's a show. Uh, unless there's anything else you want to talk about. Any other TSA checkpoint data you want me to look up? I'm sure I'll think of something in the next week. If you are the <laughs> listeners, I'm going to have it forever now. So you know, anyone wants data, <laughs> let me know. Uh, yeah, that's cool that you got that to, yeah. to work. Um, yeah, so to our listeners, you can find us on Twitter at Dots Lines, more dots, more lines.com. Leave us a comment, leave us a question if you have one, if you need a suggestion. Uh, as long as it doesn't have to do with Frontier, I'm sure we can give some kind of answer or Allegiant or something. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening and uh, happy travels. Take care.